Hello, and welcome to today's book forum on the canceling of the American mind. My name is Jennifer Huddleston, and I'm a technology policy research fellow here at the Cato Institute. I'm very excited to be joined today by one of the book's co-authors, Greg Lukianoff from the Foundation uh, Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Did I get the, the, yeah. new, the new acronym right? Yeah. Uh, who is CEO and president, as well as a New York Times bestselling author and attorney. I'm also joined today by two experts in the field of free speech, uh, Eric Eric Smith, sorry. It's a tough one. <laughs> Eric Smith, who is a professor of rhetoric, that's where I was getting ahead of myself, um, at, the, at York College, as well as a research fellow here at the Cato Institute, and David and Sarah, who is a research fellow for free expression here at the Cato Institute. We've seen a vibrant conversation in the past few years over the question of cancel culture, in a variety of situations, whether it's involving online speech or if it's involving college campuses. And this latest book really gets into the question of how does this relate to our overall culture of free speech and what does that mean for the future? So I look forward to having an excellent conversation today with both one of the authors as well as with our panelists. So to start with, Greg, in many ways, this is an extension of your book with Jonathan Haidt in 2008 about the coddling of the American mind. But it dives specifically into questions of cancel culture and our culture around the, and our culture around the issues of free speech. So why this book now, and why should people be paying attention to this issue of cancel culture? Uh, yeah, um, well, first of all, thank, thanks to Kata for having me. I, I, I think I've had a book events for everything I've written, <laughs> um, including my very my short booklet, Freedom From Speech. And thanks for um, you know, my colleagues at uh, FIRE for coming out as well. Um, I'm also, if I sound a little bit low energy, I am like mid-stomach bug. <laughs> so, um, so I barely made it, but I'm, I'm gonna power through the adrenaline takeover. Um, so originally, um, now I, whenever I write a book, it's always uh, hell. <laughs> Uh, and it takes me a couple of years to recover. Um, and by the time you're done, you're just kind of like, that's like the hardest thing I ever did in my life. Like, why would I ever want to write another one? Um, but then, of course, within a couple of years, you want to write one again. But also, you know, I, I have to be so focused on it that yet I can't, um, you know, my staff doesn't see much of me for a couple of months, you know. Um, uh, and, but, you know, we were, we were approaching uh, Coddling the American Mind being out, you know, five years. And it's like, okay, you know, I should probably do a follow-up. Um, and as luck would have it, uh, FIRE just had this new fellow, Ricky Schlott. Um, she's an absolutely brilliant young woman. She's 20, she was 20 years old at the time we made, when we made her a fellow. She's a Gen Zer who dropped out of NYU very sensibly um, uh, during COVID because she uh, explains, I wasn't paying $70,000 for Zoom school, <laughs> which I thought was exactly right. Um, but she was a huge fan of Coddling the American Mind and reached out for a column um, to ask, uh, that, uh, she was actually making the argument that could COVID be the thing that sort of uncoddles a generation? Um, and we talked about that. She, she always laughs that that didn't turn out to be true, as best she could tell. I still hold out hope that there are you know, some people who rose to the challenge and feel empowered because of it, but I just haven't met them yet. Um, 
But while we were, so what we were planning to do was because coddling the American mind is so much about the mental health uh, threats uh, faced by Gen Z young, wom young women, that doing a follow-up book with a Gen Z young woman, specifically on the themes, but to have an additional you know, point of view um, would be awesome. And, and we were pretty excited about it. But as we were getting ready to do it, I was still hearing people saying that cancel culture wasn't real. And meanwhile, with my work at FIRE, you know, it's like, no, 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 no. Something disastrous has happened over the last, uh, mostly over the last six years, but going all the way back to 2014. We have the data, we have the stories, um, and I just wanted to um, settle that kind of once and for all. So the book more or less has three goals. Um, one is to prove cancel culture is real with examples and data. Um, spend some time explaining where it came from, not as much as I think some people would like, um, partially because we spent so much time explaining where it came from in Coddling the American Mind. Part two is actually about trying to rethink cancel culture as just a, just the meanest, the mean-spirited, the most mean-spirited way of winning arguments without winning arguments. Um, and to think of it as sort of a part of a, uh, a, a rhetorical menu, you know, that you, that you would have to, um, to defeat people in arguments without actually having to address their argument. And so the middle third of the book goes through um, what we call the obstacle course, which is the, the uh, kind of tactics that, uh, 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 that people on the left and right use. And th those are only, th those, that's mostly just standard logical fallacies. Then we call it the minefield. These are the kind of ad hominem attacks that you know, both sides use. And of course, you know, accusations of bad faith. Um, we also coined a term hypocrisy projection. Um, which has been very useful lately. Um, this has been, uh, if any of you have the misfortune of being on Twitter sometimes, you will see all cap emails about where is fire you know, on this case. Um, and we get this from the right and the left, where it's you know a conservative professor getting in trouble or a lefty student getting in trouble. Um, and they assume, because they assume that we're partisan and we are very much not a partisan organization, that we won't say anything on it and haven't said anything about it. Meanwhile, it's literally been the case that people have have tweeted this out while citing an article that we're quoted in. <laughs> um, they hadn't actually read the article. There was someone else who, who was like, where's fire on this? It's like the document you're sending around was a product of, an, uh, of something that fire filed. Like that's from a fire lawyer. Um, so you see a lot of hypocrisy projection, and, and it's always from someone who only cares about one side of the political fence when it comes to censorship. Um, and then, uh, then we get into the perfect rhetorical fortress on the left, which we call perfect because it's just layer after layer of ways to not have to argue um, with someone. And of course, the most effective tool is the simplest, which is just declaring someone conservative, right wing, means you don't have to listen to them anymore. Um, and that was even true uh, when I got to, uh, to law school. Um, I went to, uh, I started at Stanford uh, Law School in, in 97, and that was kind of my first experience with kind of like elite, the elite world. Um, and I was guilty of it too, you know, like a lot of the way you argued was, you know, like if you could, oh, but actually, you know, you shouldn't read Thomas Sowell because he's a right winger. You shouldn't read Camille Paglia because she's a right winger apparently was what, I, what I'd been taught, which is, kind of ridiculous, um, and it, it's an amazingly effective. But then you get to all the identity categories, um, 
we, we take people down a sort of demographic funnel in the book. Um, and by the end of it, when you're down to the 0.9% of the population that would matter under a strict intersectionalist um, interpretation of your worth, um, it still doesn't matter because if you have the wrong opinion, then suddenly you have all these other rhetorical tools like, oh, you have internalized racism, you have internalized misogyny, you have internalized transphobia, uh, you have false consciousness, basically. And that's only level six. I think we, we point out about 14 of them. Um, on the right, we talk about the efficient rhetorical fortress, which is, the, the, um, we call it efficient because it's just a much simpler way of dismissing people. You can dismiss liberals, experts, uh, journalists, and if you're very uh, MAGA, anyone who's you know, critical of Trump. Um, and we have three chapters talking about cancel culture from the right. We don't both siderism because we're not pretending that it's equally, you know, equally coming from um, uh, uh, both sides at the same scale. Um, but but uh, we do take it uh, take on cancel culture from the right as well. And then the last third is us beginning to try to um, lay out potential solutions. Um, and I don't let the, that amount of space fool you. That's not because I'm super optimistic about how easy it would to fix. We, wanna, we, we want to talk about parenting. We have a great chapter on parenting. We talk about K through 12 reform, what your business can do to stay out of the culture war. Um, and, uh, and then of course we talk about what, what's to be done about higher education, um, which I just get more and more like <laughs> start over, um, you know, d depending on what day you, uh, uh, what day you find me. So um, that, that's, uh, that's a large part of the book. Um, we'd had the misfortune of coming out uh, right after the Hamas attacks. Um, and it, w it definitely made the book more topical in a way, but it was definitely hard to get people to pay attention to a new book uh, during that time. Um, it is starting to be understood as something that helps explain some of what's going on on campus as is coddling the American mind. And it is an opportunity you know, right now to stand up for free speech even of people you don't like. Um, and that's something that uh, I think, you know, a Cato audience understands, that free speech doesn't mean anything um, unless uh, everyone has it. Uh, you know, standing up for only your side of an argument, um, only for what you believe or people you agree with is kind of like cheating. Everyone can do that. It only matters when you're standing up for people you disagree with. Now, of course, I can say this with regards to fire. Um, you know, it doesn't really apply to fire for this reason. We're sufficiently politically diverse of an institution that we don't even agree on, you know, p political issues, but we do all agree on free speech. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's been um, a real honor uh, to work with with my team at Fire and get uh, an awful lot more hate mail than we usually do <laughs> in the past couple of weeks. But, you know, um, as one of my friends used to say, you're not doing the Lord's work until you get hate mail. Well, I may have bungled my introduction of our, our two experts a bit earlier, but I, I do want to get turn over to them because they are both experts in the ideas of what is our free speech culture like? How has this played out? I. It, want to turn to Eric first. You've done a great bit of research and writing about the questions of free speech, both online and offline and on campuses and, uh, and on different issues. What about this book most resonated with you, and how does it relate to your own work on this topic? Wow. There are like 17 answers to that question. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, um, I will try to narrow it down to a couple. I'll start with a story. How about that? Um, as a, I've told this story before, uh, so sorry if I'm boring you. Um, as a child, I was one of the few uh, African-American 
children in the neighborhood. And um, they let me know it on a regular basis. <laughs> um, and it, it, it wasn't nice, uh, but basically, the idea, the message was, you know, how dare you be happy or successful or good in this class or what have you, don't you know you're black? I was happy to go to my high school after all that because it was quite diverse. Um, I think it was about 50% African-American. So I couldn't wait to go and finally get away from this stuff. And in many ways they were worse because having grown up in a white neighborhood, I acted too much like that, right? So they too were saying, don't you know you're black? Why do I tell this story? Because my bullies, both sets of bullies have not gone away. They are now administrators at Research One universities. <laughs> they're, they're heads of HR departments. They are chief editors in uh, academic publications as well as publishing houses and things like that. Uh, my bullies have won, it seems, and that bothers me a little bit. Um, so I try to do things like this to uh, get the word out on those kinds of things. But going back to that story, I think I can get some insight from the way I dealt with those things. I dealt with it with a lot of humor, right? Um, mostly to myself, but humor nonetheless. It, 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 it helped me get through some things. So when I think about that and I apply it to today's situations, I think, okay, let's apply humor to this situation. Uh, Simon Critchley has a wonderful book called On Humor in which he cites jokes as a way to, um, you know, uh, I don't know, diffuse some of these issues, um, and to point out the fact that the powerful may not be that powerful, that the emperor has no clothes, basically, right? That's a great way to do it. I've written on the power of ridicule uh, to deal with these things. Now, when I say ridicule, I'm not saying a counterpart to cancellation, all right? Because I, I think ridicule needs to be accompanied by reason, reason and rationality, as well as the desire to hear the other person respond to what you're talking about. That's not what we get uh, with cancel culture. Um, and I often cite Socrates on this. Um, in, in Plato's Gorgias, he's arguing with Callicles, who's not being nice. And Socrates basically says, you know, if you need to call me names, do it, as long as we have this conversation, right? And I, I take that to heart, and that's my attitude as well. I mean, if you need to call me names, that's, that's fantastic. As long as we keep talking, as long as we have this uh, back and forth. Ridicule is not cancellation, mainly because of the reasons I gave, but also because cancellation is the latest form of what uh, sociologists and historians call a status degradation ceremony, right? So what is a status degradation ceremony? Um, we no longer tar and feather people, right? I don't think so, anyway. <laughs> we no longer pillory people, right? We do mob them on Facebook. We mob them on Twitter. That's the new version of this. And the point of that is to take away status. Um, it's also to show people what, to, what not to do, right? It shows the other people, hey, if you mess up, we're going to do this to you. So that's the point of a degradation ceremony, and that by no means is ridicule, because ridicule is about the back and forth. Ridicule can be a part of civil discourse. Again, call me whatever you want, as long as I get to respond to that insult. And I will explain my ridicule to you as reasonably as possible. 
I'm going to stop talking there. That's oh, I realized I probably should have given the definition of cancel yeah. culture. <laughs> um, so we spend some time in the book <coughs> talking about different definitions um, of cancel culture, uh, including a, a, a more detailed shout out for my friend Jonathan Rausch's great seven-part test for if you've been canceled, in which if any two or three apply, you've been canceled. Um, but we go with a, a, a simpler one and one that's based... Um, I'm trying to make the argument that, uh, you know, as a First Amendment lawyer, as a constitutional lawyer who loves um, the history of freedom of speech, um, different periods of mass censorship all have names. Um, you know, the, the first Red Scare and the Pomerades, uh, the second Red Scare, also known as McCarthyism, um, the Victorian era, the Sedition Act. And I'm sort of proposing that th this be called sort of the era, era of cancel culture. Um, and it is, a lot, we've seen people get a little bit like, well, this isn't anything new. Um, and of course, the instincts to cancel people are absolutely not new. Um, but the ability to suddenly create something that looks like a giant, you know, mob of a thousand people that might actually just be a dozen people with sock puppet accounts. Um, and bots uh, is new. Um, and so social media is one of the things that really let this take off. I mean, previously, if you wanted a journalist fired, you would just you know, uh, send the editor a letter, and that would end up promptly in a drawer somewhere. Um, so we, uh, our definition is uh, the uptick of campaigns to get people fired, uh, expelled, deplatformed, or otherwise punished um, beginning in 2014 and accelerating um, uh, 2017 and after, particularly 2020, um, for speech that uh, would be protected under the First Amendment. Um, now, to be clear, uh, we say would be because we're talking about outside of context in which the First Amendment normally apply. And in an appendix, I explain that I'm talking about as an analogy to public employee law as a way of bringing in a great deal of common sense and nuance um, to, to the discussion without bogging down um, the argument too much. And the culture of fear that, um, that has resulted, uh, culture of fear and conformity that's resulted from that. Well, this seems like a great place to bring David into the conversation because, David, I know your research focuses on the online space. We've heard both Greg and Eric bring this up in, in their comments. I was wondering, with your focus on kind of the online culture of free speech, what in this book particularly resonated with you and, and with your own work on this topic? Indeed, yeah. So I really enjoyed your chapter on social media. Um, where you talk about how there are a variety of ways in which cancellation can attempt to, can occur online, and how even just the rules of the platforms themselves, which of course these platforms have the right to set their standards to their own property, it's their right to do so, but the standards that are being pushed for, the mobs that are calling for changes to policies through deplatform people, there's this there's, there's this energy there which indicates that, that, that there's a very, there's powerful, it's powerful there, but it doesn't always actually achieve the goals of what the cancelers want. And that many of the arguments used for canceling are that, well, we need to save democracy, we're stopping hate speech, we're stopping misinformation. But as you point out in the book, there's evidence to show that when you take someone down for hate speech or misinformation, they don't just sort of be like, oh, you're right. I was hateful. I, 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 was, I must have been wrong about this. More often than not, they, they double down. You cite evidence that when people are deplatformed from one platform, they go to a different platform, and they often increase the intensity of the beliefs for which they were originally punished. And not only that, but it's also making the problem worse in the sense that they are now leaving 
platforms where there are uh, a wide variety of views, and now they're going to smaller, more insular social media networks. They may be even going private. They may be going offline, where as a society, we don't even see what's going on. Right. And I find this funny because for a long time, we've been told to worry about echo chambers, radical, group radicalization that's occurring on you know, YouTube and Facebook. But then you're pushing people yeah. into these small get, insular communities. Get these to your echo chamber. Exactly. Yeah. And so we're actually, if for all the, the worries about group radicalization and echo chambers, we are in accelerating it through the actions of insisting that we cancel more and more people online. And so I found that to be just a truly like insightful moment that really connected with my experience when I was on the content policy team at Meta. So this is some of the exact arguments I remember saying, like, these people are viewing these as badges of honor. We're not changing the hearts and minds, the ultimate problem of problematic speech. You're just shifting it somewhere else where it continues to fester. Um, and so I really enjoyed that section of the book. Oh, yeah. The, 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 we have some really interesting data there um, showing how people get more radicalized when they go to these smaller, angrier platforms. And um, I got a call from a uh, French reporter from L'Express um, after October 7th um, with a very sort of bemused French tone um, about like, isn't this making you, th isn't this making you rethink your hate speech laws? Um, that, what, that America doesn't have these? And like somehow I was going to be like, oh, right. Oh, my God, I was so wrong. And I'm like, okay. So... France, which passed laws against anti-Semitic speech, I think in the 90s, had a, an anti-Semitism polled, um, at least the ways they could show it in polling, um, and a little bit worse than America, but not all that much. Now, obviously, it is much, much worse. And I, I go further than, think, than simply arguing that the, um, that the laws uh, weren't effective. Well, clearly, they weren't, if the goal was to get rid of anti-Semitism. Um, that it made things worse because one, you're large, and I said this in the New York, in the Wall Street Journal this weekend, if you're fighting people who believe there's a conspiracy to shut them up, do absolutely nothing that looks like a conspiracy to shut them up. <laughs> um, and at the same time, like I had to sort of like, uh, and when you look at like how bad, I mean, the displays of anti-Semitism in France are terrifying. I mean, obviously we're seeing some of that on campus as well, which by the way, also have hate speech codes. Um, so no, no, kind of no surprise there. Um, but I, I, I had a moment, uh, I think I broke through to her a little bit on this one because I was kind of like, th think of it this way. You just told all the anti-Semites in France to only talk to other anti-Semites. What did you think was going to happen? Yeah. Well, this has already been a great start to this conversation. I have some more questions for our panelists, but I do want to remind everyone that at the end of this panel, we will have a Q&A. And for those of you who are joining us online, you can submit questions directly on the event webpage or through Facebook, YouTube, and on X using the hashtag Cato1A. But something that came up when we talked about this issue, and, and you mentioned college campuses recently, is oftentimes we hear the idea of cancel culture tied to young people, tied yeah. to college students. I know FIRE has recently expanded their portfolio. That's why I was confirming that I had the yeah, acronym yeah, yeah. right to, to go beyond. I, I, I was looking at it. It's, 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 it used to be the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, and we became the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression on June 6, 2022. So, so we've certainly seen this be part of a broader conversation, both with your own work and beyond. I'm wondering for, for our panelists, 
is this issue really about more than just college campuses and kids these days, you know, Gen Z on their Snapchat and their TikTok and their Twitter? What do we see about cancel culture scenarios off campuses and or with Adults. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, we spend a lot of the book. We have the best data on uh, professor cancellations, and it's really disturbing, and it's about twice as bad in terms of professors fired as McCarthyism, just to give you a, like a very quick, um, crazy data point. And about one in six professors say that they um, have been threatened with punishment or actually investigated. Uh, about one in 10 students say that. That's, that's a report that came out today. And it's funny, like some, um, it, it, sometimes people, you realize they don't know a lot about the history of free speech and how, forgive the expression, batshit those numbers are. Um, for uh, after 9-11, you know, you were talking about um, uh, three professors, you know, far, uh, fired for speech relating to that in the Iraq War, and all three of them were justified by things that had nothing to do with free speech. Uh, talking about over, you know, over two hundred—that's that—that's that, just you know completely crazy. But in the book, we do also go well beyond campus, and I think actually, um, uh, I do think that. To, in a very real sense, a lot of this comes from campus, but it also comes from. And this was a cool thing about writing with Ricky, writing with an actual Gen Zer, is that you know there was one time when we were explaining our, our on a podcast explaining our definition of cancel culture, um, and she just made a crack about kind of like, well, you know, it's starting in 2015 is kind of news to me because I grew up with it, um, and that's exactly right because th this is literally you know something that grew in you know teen tween culture uh, at, from the first generation of. Um, you know, grade school bullies to have social media in their pockets and figure out n new and improved ways to to bully your friends that actually also let you feel virtuous. Um, and we gave them, as Height and I talk about, we they're, they're they're given the perfect weapon: the social media and and, and a smartphone. And uh, and of course, it's you know wreaked some amount of havoc on on being a, it, it, the, mostly growing up. You're always like, ah, it'd probably be more fun to be a kid today. And pretty much since the smartphone, it's like, oh God, I am so glad I grew up, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. Like this is this is so much better. And and what I'm getting at here is that in a very real sense, the whole rest of the world is now talking and fighting like junior high schoolers, because these techniques made their way up to um, uh, up to higher education around 2014. They were supported already by a lot of existing academic ideas and a lot of existing sort of illiberalism on campus. And then it's no coincidence that right around 2017, 2018, you start seeing this in the corporate world because they're graduating and they're bringing this, the, these uh, relational tactics with them um, as a way. I, I, I actually had a line in there that was just a little too nerdy uh, for Ricky, which was calling it the, um, the selfish meme theory that essentially cancel culture replicates itself because it's a technology that's designed to replicate itself, eh, too nerdy. Um, <laughs> and but it's it's kind of everywhere now. And when I and that's one of the reasons why we have a chapter on how to keep your corporation out of the culture war. Because and this is this drives me nuts. Um, after coddling came out, uh, business leaders across the country on a pretty regular basis would write or call me in height um, and say the new crop of elite school grads we have coming to our offices are dysfunctional. 
tiny, tiny things that happen, you know, like um, but, uh, but sometimes between bosses, sometimes between coworkers, become a cause for shutting down the entire operation for a day to have talkbacks and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then being told, you know, oh yeah, I, and we've decided that we're, we're not hiring from the Ivy League anymore, you know. And, and my response is always, could you please tell the world that? Because that would actually, you know, be some encouragement for some of these schools to change what they're doing. If they're producing a product that is not worth what it used to be, and then they certainly are producing a product that is not worth what it used to be. Um, so this is definitely hitting the corporate world very hard. Um, some of the stuff does come much more directly out of higher education, though, and probably the most depressing chapter um, is the one on um, cancel culture in uh, psychotherapy. Um, and because, you know, I, I, my, you know, journey um, uh, writing books about, you know, CBT comes from my own, me being hospitalized as a suicidally depressed back in 2007. Um, and I didn't stress that very much in coddling, but I do talk a lot more about it now. A lot of it was just the freaking culture war, being stuck in the culture war all the time and like having people who would hate you on one case and then love you on the next one. Um, you know, uh, living in a world where nobody respected what I did other than the people I actually worked with, you know, um, and hated me. Uh, I, I mean, my girlfriend at the time, actually, I remember saying, I'm, I'm old school ACLU guy. Like, I, I, I'm willing to defend the Nazis at Skokie. I'm certainly willing to defend Republicans. And her response was literally, I think Republicans might be worse. So that, that didn't go anywhere. Um, and this chapter is about how a lot of what you know, I, I actually really like. I wonder what term you like. Um, the wokeness is not my favorite term, just because it's it's used more as a like a um, insult. And, it, and uh, um, but uh, I actually like Tim Urban's very self-explanatory social social uh, social justice fundamentalist <laughs> because I think it, it's, it explains itself very well. Um, and a lot of that stuff is making its way into the actual sessions. Where uh, in law, where in clinical psych programs, and I, have, I know a lot of people are in these right now. And by the way, none of them wanted to be named, and I understand why. Uh, are telling me about all the hand wringing uh, uh, about what if I found out that my patient that I'm trying to help is a Republican or even a Trump supporter? And of course, for any compassionate person, the answer is then you treat them. <laughs> I think I think the term is unconditional regard, kind of like like you 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 have a you have an ethical obligation, and, and that's flying out of the window, and that's horrifying to me. Even worse are they're being told to intervene to correct bad views on on, on the couch. Um, and uh, do, do you know Camille Foster? Uh, yes. Yeah, he, he's on our board. He's fifth, fifth column, awesome guy, um, uh, black dude. He was getting um, uh, he was getting couples therapy with, with his wife, and he always explains this kind of like, we're, we're, we're good, don't worry. Um, and in couples therapy, um, and, and I, I, you know, I, 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 if you're familiar with, with Camille, he has very idiosyncratic ideas on race. Like he, like he, he, he truly believes it kind of like it doesn't exist in, in, in a sense. Um, but in the middle of one of the sessions, his uh, therapist starts going, well, now I think this is a good opportunity for us to talk about what I think might really be going, uh, be going on here, your internalized racism. 
And of course, sensibly, his response was, I'm paying for this? <laughs> um, and, and, they no, and they no longer went uh, to see that therapist. But for me, you know, I'm like, okay, I came real close in 2007. And if I showed up at my shrink's office and they started correcting me on my understanding of the culture war, I don't know if I'd still be here. And the book, by the way, the, the actually no, the most depressing chapter. Sorry, it's a it, 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 it's a winsome ri a, a, a riot. You'll you'll have a lovely time. Just there's, there's, there's some uh, read it. there's some uh, there's some dark moments. Is uh, my friend Mike Adams who killed himself after being canceled uh, back in uh, back in 2020 um, at UNCW. It's it's an incredibly sad case. But yes, you know, along our, our uh, cancel, we, we are all cancelers and potentially cancelers uh, canceled now. David and Eric, any anything to kind of weigh on 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 what's going on with cancel culture in in the adult circles as opposed to the the college campuses and and young people circles? Yeah, uh, if you don't mind. Um, when I was reading the book, one of my biggest fears of um, how it would be received is that the book is arguing that nobody should be held accountable for anything ever, which is not the case. Um, accountability is not cancellation. Um, and, and when I think about the distinction between accountability and cancellation, I go to uh, Hannah Arendt's book, uh, The Human Condition, in which she says that the the salient concept of any kind of deliberative democracy, any kind of civil society, is forgiveness. You know, you have to be able to forgive. Uh, or, or else it's like, you know, March Madness. You lose once and you're out. <laughs> you know, that's not how deliberation works. That's not how democracy works. You've got to have a chance to, to do it again. Accountability um, may be calling someone out to a degree, but forgiveness is still there. Uh, it's still respected. It's still something you, uh, you carry with you. Cancellation does not have that. Uh, cancellation is um, uh, arguably de derived from um, uh, the Frankfurt School uh, ideology of uh, repressive tolerance, Marcuse specifically. Who makes a big appearance in the book. Yes, yes. And uh, his idea was that all these ideas we don't like can't be tolerated at all. You know, we have to love ourselves and hate everything the other side is doing. In other words, no forgiveness, right? Forgiveness within the way from Marcuse. It has to be the way if we want to maintain a, a civil and democratic society. And to just jump in there, <clears throat> that's exactly sort of what I was thinking about when I was enjoy enjoyed reading those chapters on academia. And I saw this, you sort of described this sort of capture by the Marcusians, this, this Frankfurt School that starts with the administrators and the professoriate increasingly, and now even the, whether directly or indirectly, the young people who are going to school. Yeah. And it, Reminded me, and there's an echo here of also of just the experience. Also, you mentioned like corporations, of the experience in working in a, in a social media company, where you sort of lack intellectual diversity. There's sort of like a monoculture there, and <coughs> what happens is is that when you're looking to craft policies about what content should be allowed and what shouldn't be allowed, well, you're reaching for experts in fields of academia, like like communication, sociology, gender studies, dealing with some of the big issues of your world, but those are almost entirely captured by viewpoints that think that, well, we need to repress certain viewpoints. Certain viewpoints can't be tolerated. They're harmful speech yeah. that we need to stop. And so th that sort of impact of this academic theorem of the Frankfurt School, it's no longer just academic. It's gone, it's gone virtual. 
And those are now impacting the rules about how we want to communicate as a society online because those are the experts. Yeah. Those are the folks. R raise, raise your hands if you know Herbert Marcuse. Okay, most of you. Um, the, uh, I made myself reread Repressive Tolerance um, for the book, and I had forgotten how straightforward it is about um, we are the, we're good people and we're interested in equality and, and real freedom. <coughs> that means we need gross powers to repress the bad people. Uh, who are so-called conservatives, the so-called right wing. Um, I forgot that it was so explicit about being like conservatives. Like, it, 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 like it, it, um, a lot of times in later speech codes, they kind of dress it up in, in, in more indirect language. But it's like no, and and of course to Marcuse, about two thirds of the rest of the country, um, probably more, is actually you know right wing by his standards. Um, and I actually didn't take him as seriously um, for a chunk of my career because I, I, I tend to tend to think ideas become successful only under right environments and they only keep the parts that they like. Um, but I have come around to him being more influential than I, 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 I fully appreciated, you know, like, and now he's enjoying kind of a renaissance. And I've been told about how people will cite repressive tolerance a lot, like it's some kind of brilliant work. And I'm kind of like, its argument is old school authoritarianism, you know, someone in the freaking... 12th century BC could have written it. It's like good people have free speech, bad people know who decide me. It's like like that, that's that's the that's the oldest structure ever. It's middle school mean girl logic. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to get to some of the criticisms of this idea of cancel culture. Yep. Of you you gave your definition of what cancel culture is earlier, but to play devil's advocate here, sure. there are some folks who say, look, this is just rebranding of the culture wars. This is something that's actually being done to bring about accountability. This is <coughs> about needing to protect vulnerable and marginalized individuals from those who have more power. This is just, you know, a longstanding organizing tactic in a, a digital age. What is distinct about cancel culture when it comes to the concerns regarding the impact that it could have on free speech culture? And why do you think that, that these criticisms may misunderstand what's actually going on? Yeah, the um, cancel culture is just a less powerful people rising up argument, <coughs> which in a lot of times, if you look at the actual cases, is almost a non sequitur. It's kind of like, what, what on earth does this have to do with Dave Weigel retweeting a joke? You know, um, like who, who is exactly being helped by that other than people who want to get some scalps on the wall? Um, but what makes it particularly kind of amusing to me is just the um, cancel culture is disproportionately a rich person game. Um, and what I mean by that is that the schools that have uh, the highest rates of cancellation and cancellation attempts by far are the top 10 schools in the country. And at the top 10 schools in the country, the U.S. News and World Reports, I mean, um, about um, I think the stat is something like, uh, more people come from the top 1% than come from the bottom 60% uh, of the economic uh, distribution. Um, and it was uh, not lost on me, and actually I, thought quite, I was quite tickled by the fact that the most ferocious defense of cancel culture just being good came from a bunch of Harvard students. And I had to ask them, it's like, do you not think you're privileged and powerful? Um, and they didn't like me even asking that. They didn't answer. Um, they just didn't like being asked that. Um, 
it, so yeah, I, I think the idea that it's just standing up for the little guy is nonsense. Um, the, uh, partially, particularly if you look on campus, the people who are really facilitating it more than anybody else are campus administrators. They're powerful. They're, um, they're oftentimes very well paid. Um, you know, and like I said, a lot of these are the, these are kids from very privileged families, and they're, you know, like in the case of um, that. Yeah, there, there was a case. This goes. This goes. This is pre-cancel culture, but I always think about this case. You know. Um, we had a case at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, way back in 2007, in which a janitor, um, a student who was working his way through school as a janitor, was reading a book called Notre Dame versus the Klan. It's a book about uh, the fact that the that um, the Klan, which also hated Catholics too, um, I think it still does, uh, decided to march on Notre Dame, and they got. Uh, defeated in a street battle by a bunch of Notre Dame students, and it's it, it's this absolutely like joyful, tall tale that happens to be true about you know kids uh, beating uh, defeating the, the Klan in, in a street fight. Um, it's not it's a an, you know it's an, not, not not in a candy way, but it's an anti-racist book. But because the cover features a picture of the rally, um, a, an actual historical picture. Uh, of the rally, um, he was found guilty of racial harassment because an employee found seeing that offensive. Um, and it's one of those things where it's kind of like, so this is about power dynamics and you just decided to ruin the life of a janitor working his way through the, um, there was also the story at Smith, it was pretty much the same thing. Uh, the, it, uh, the idea that it's just accountability culture and I'm just on the side of the little guy um, and, and the helpless is more or less just uh, stories that people tell themselves so, that, so they can feel uh, a little more self-righteous as they watch the sport of ruining someone's life. And, and may I add to that? Yes. It's also insulting to the little guy. You know, it's very okay. paternalistic, yeah. right? I, I have to save you. Yeah. I don't need to be saved. Oh, you're suffering from false consciousness. <laughs> no, I'm not. It, oh, so then you're conservative. You're not a real black person, right? <laughs> This, this, these are the lines they use, as you point out in the book. Yeah, that, that was a great line from, um, I, while we were doing the chapter on the perfect rhetorical fortress, which was kind of cathartic to write, honestly, um, and just layering these things on top of each other, all these different tactics, um, Ricky and I just were like, you know what, we're going to ask basically every black author we know, um, like, have you been told you're not really black for an opinion you had? Every single one of them said absolutely, and that included uh, John McWhorter. You know, he, he had a great story about that. Of course, Wilfred Riley, um, Charles Love. Um, a, a lot of people responded when we asked about this. And Coleman Hughes had this great, you know, put, put it as Coleman does. Um, he, he put it incredibly well, which was just, I'm constantly being told that the most important thing about my uh, opinion is the color of my skin. But once I have an opinion that uh, people don't like, I'm suddenly told that I'm not really black. Um, and it was like, and he, it was just like, it's perfect. Like, like it, 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 there's no way to lose under these circumstances. And, and that's the thing that when you really go down the perfect rhetorical fortress, you start realizing, oh, this isn't about protecting vulnerable people. This is about not ever having to question an, an argument. This, this is about protecting dogma. Yeah, I would just add to that. It reminds me of uh, previous battles with whenever there's a new technology that emerges that gives people who maybe previously didn't have a voice, they get their voice. We, and we have, we're seeing this sort of elite panic, I think, going on that's going on. You talk about, yeah, it's not really the little guy. It's often used to say, like, look, there are certain disfavored views that, you know, 
They don't deserve to be online. They're harming people. And there's sort of this elite panic going on with this technology back in you know, 2008 and previously. Social media was the savior. Technology was, and the internet was, was leading to great things. And now increasingly, it's just all bad, all harmful. And it's because we've allowed this speech that is, that is wrong. And so this, yet, and it's always defined in a way which seems to empower the elites as opposed to the average person who wants to use their platform for, for whatever reasons, use the technologies for whatever reasons is empowering them. And so it, it strikes me as that this also has, like, once again, echoes of previous times in history. Totally. Where whenever there's a new technology that comes around, the powers that be don't want that, that technology to empower the people who are below them. Yeah. And this is just repeating that. Yeah, so the idea that this is helping or harming the, the little guy, this is empowering people who previously had very little voice. They wrote a letter to the editor if they wanted to complain. Now they have a whole plat they have platforms to reach their friends and colleagues who they never never dreamed of that access before. So once again, just to re reiterate the effect that it's not protecting the little guy and holding people accountable. It's I think serving the interests of the people in power. There's, there's an amazing Aldous Huxley quote that I wish I discovered um, while we were writing the book. Um, oh, one thing that we do in the book that I'm proud of is we tried to go with every kind of um, a, a sort of typical form w w approach to persuasion. And so every chapter opens up with um, an authority figure condemning cancel culture, because I want anybody who actually reads it to, by the time they're, they're done with it, not only will they have been overwhelmed with examples, overwhelmed with cutting edge data, they'll also have to uh, realize that if they don't believe cancel culture exists, they disagree with Barack Obama, um, the Pope, uh, Taylor Swift, uh, the, the uh, uh, Helena Bonham Carter, like, like, like it, it, we, and, and we, we do one at, at, at the opening of each, each, uh, each chapter. May I just add, uh, for people who think cancel culture doesn't exist, uh, I had the misfortune of being on NPR a few years ago, and, <laughs> and um, I was told that it doesn't exist because you're fine. You know, um, so many people aren't getting fired. They were, actually, but I didn't yeah. have the data at the time. Yeah. And, they're and still I, alive. Yeah, they're, right. They're still <laughs> alive. They're fine. What do you mean cancel culture? And I said cancel culture is in the attempt, right? It, yeah. it's, not, it's not necessarily successful. You, you don't need any kind of empirical evidence that you have canceled somebody. Uh, Christian culture, you don't have to prove that Jesus exists. It's about believing yeah. that Jesus exists, and that's what the culture is. It's about believing that you should cancel somebody and then going through with it. That's cancel culture. It has nothing to do with success. I want to get to this kind of question of, of what has changed. You referred to yourself as an old-school ACLU guy, and this used to be that free speech was the idea that kind of united the left yeah. and the right, that, that we saw a coming together of people really recognizing the importance of the First Amendment, the importance of hearing views that were, were different from their own. And you've, we've brought this up several times in this conversation. Now you see cancellation attempts from both the left and the right. So what is it that you think changed around the value of free speech and what might be done from a, a societal point of view to kind of return to that recognition? On the left, I, I call it the slow motion train wreck. Um, because when I was at the ACLU back in 99, the free speech lawyers were not the cool kids. Um, actually, Michelle Alexander uh, was at, um, uh, she's a person who wrote The New Jim Crow. We all had terrible crushes on her. She was brilliant and beautiful. Um, but at the same time, kind of like the practices at the ACLU of Northern California that got you like a lot of um, uh, props, you know, as, as we said in the 90s, um, or, or juice maybe, um, what were, um, 
the gay rights project and the um, uh, and, and the racial justice one. It, I also remember that they were suing um, uh, the LA school system for not having enough AP classes, even though there wasn't a large demand for AP classes at some of these schools. And I, I, I was not very popular for being like, what, wh why? Um, is that helpful? Um, but even back then, you know, like um, at, at the ACLU, you, you kind of weren't, um, I mean, I got dressed down on my first day at, at the ACLU uh, for talking about how great it is to work in a place that defends everybody. And the gay rights associate started saying, well, we don't defend harassment. And I was like, what, who, what? I didn't say harassment. And that was kind of like my first um, clue that it's like, oh, that's the code for speech you don't like now. And, and that's, you know, the, the, the speech codes of the 80s and 90s were harassment codes. And I, and I didn't actually fully know that back in, even back in 99. Um, and I call it the slow motion train wreck because it was very clear that there was both natural forces and a very intentional campaign to change the valence of free speech on the left. That essentially that the progressives wanted to beat the liberals. And unfortunately, I feel like they're winning now. Um, now, uh, and that the, um, you, you get much more free speech, uh, when you talk to people on campus, they're much more free speech critical. And one of the first things they think of is hate speech. When you bring up free speech, you know, I've heard, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that basically free speech is like a right wing dog whistle, um, you know, uh, now. Um, but it is important to know that if you look at the polling, um, liberals over the age of 45 are still actually quite good on free speech. Um, and uh, liberals uh, under 30 just don't know a lot about it because no one's ever taught them anything about it. Probably the lost cause are millennials. No offense, guys. Um, the, um, uh, just the numbers are not encouraging there. And one thing that FIRE has been trying to do uh, since we had our expansion is to grow our network of people and supporters. Um, and we started this project with about 30,000 people in our network, which we thought was pretty good, you know. Um, and now, uh, as, as we've been doing this campaign, we're well over 800,000. And we have pretty close to parity uh, between left and right um, represented in our larger group. But again, that is disproportionately older, um, you know, older liberals. I think free speech, uh, I think the trends are bad for free speech in, in the long run, particularly given that the younger crop of professors are more, uh, they're, they're, they're less uh, viewpoint diverse, uh, if, if, that, if you can believe that, and much less. And they poll bad, much worse on free speech. When the boomers and, and Gen X people go, we, we might be in some trouble. Now, cancel culture on the right, we do, like I said, we, we, it's about a 20-something chapter book, and we spend about three of them on cancel culture. And, and it's not pointless both ciderism, you know, you know, but we do want to call some stuff out. And particularly some of the stuff that's come out of legislatures we, we find troubling. Um, Despite the response to this, you know, massive Orwellian attempt to rein in curriculum in higher ed, though, actually only one law was passed um, in the country that uh, that, that um, impinged on academic freedom in terms of curriculum. It was the DeSantis's Stop Woke Act uh, that was passed in 2020, I think. Um, and it's it's a remarkable law because they actually had to go into court and argue that. Well, under this law, uh, you could argue against affirmative action in class. You just couldn't argue for it. And it's like, you just lost the case. Like, if you just have to concede that, I'm sorry, that's called viewpoint discrimination, you lost. 
Um, and they and they lost. Um, it was, uh, uh, and we warned everyone about this being unconstitutional. We sued against it, um, and 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 we won. Um, so we do call call that out, but but we do we do try to you know actually um, compare things. You know, uh, try not to pretend that it's equally symmetrical. Eric or, or David? I would just note that you do a great job of the book of describing how this is also just a long-standing problem, how there's, I think, I've seen Ricky speak about that, there's a natural tendency for us to slouch. Yeah. And in the same way, there's sort of a natural tendency toward tribalism and to censor those who disagree with us. And so for the past half century plus, we've actually been living in an incredible period of time for free expression, yep. both culturally and in our laws. But our own history shows that hasn't always been the case. We've had the Alien Sedition Acts. We had pre-Civil War laws in the South against, you know, against, uh, prohibiting being able to talk against slavery. Mm -hmm. Various dissenters from various wars being locked up, including in some bad Supreme Court cases. Yeah. Right? Like, our speech laws and culture haven't always been as robust as they have been. And in some ways, this is, it shows a potentially scary regression to the mean. Yes. Um, and so I, I think this idea that we need to, yeah, straighten our spines, re remind ourselves that those folks that don't know better, they just haven't heard the, the, the why freedom of expression is so important for them, so important, so important for our society, they need to be reminded of that. And then also the folks who are engaging in a little bit of censorship envy, a little tit-for-tat yeah. political games, they also need to be told, look, I know you don't buy into this whole thing of, of you, you kind of believe in free speech, but you can't, can't be a fair weather supporter of it. Yeah. So it, it comes from both sides, but yeah, there's this definite challenge here of being able to call up, stop those people who actively think speech is harmful, educate them, tell them they're wrong, and then also restrain those who are just engaging in that tit-for-tat political tribalism. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my, my substack is called The Eternally Radical Idea, which is a reference to freedom of speech. Uh, because as I always point out, because in every generation, people stand up to demand censorship um, all throughout human history. Um, it's, it's an instinct. I, I think Matt Hentoff used to joke that uh, uh, censorship is the first instinct, uh, sex comes second. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and the sad thing is they're usu they usually win. It, it's actually com comparatively um, strange time to actually have. Uh, I feel very lucky to looking into history and realizing that, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s, uh, particularly getting to live in Eastern Europe, you know, after the wall came down, you know, it was like that, you know, that, that was a great time for free speech, um, both in terms of law and in terms of culture. Um, and I, I, I can't. I've really been kind of scared, frankly, about how much I've seen the, the culture part um, uh, suffer in, in just the past few years. And, and uh, at the moment, you know, I still am afraid it's going to get worse before it gets better. I want to ask one final question before I turn to our audience Q&A. What are the solutions that we should reach to? As you mentioned, you know, unfortunately, oftentimes what we see as a response is censorship for censorship or, or a tit for tat on, on cancellation for cancellation. For those of us who believe in the values of a free society, I know you lay out several solutions yep. in the book, but also David and Eric, what are, are your thoughts on, on what the free society response to cancel culture should be? Well, um, I'm a professor of rhetoric, so obviously I'm going to speak from that viewpoint. Um, I think a lot of, when it comes to what I've seen beyond cancel culture and, and things like that, uh, the, the issue isn't so much that people are afraid of argumentation, they're afraid of losing those arguments. Mm -hmm. So let's give them some tactics uh, to help them be reasonable 
with those arguments. Reasonable, not fallacious. Mm -hmm which is why I, I wish you used a different term for your fortresses uh, yeah. in the book. Uh, I would call it more sophistic, you know, uh, because those were the people who were using fallacies and, and, and things like that to gain power and to teach others to gain power by talking about things they know nothing about. Yeah. You know, I think the sophists get a bad rap, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> but still, the, the, the term is uh, what it is. I think we need to do that. I think we need to make debate cool again. Um, not just in high school, not just in college, uh, have it be a thing. Have it be, have debate be like the gladiators were back in the day. Uh, we'll watch them fight, yeah. and that way we won't fight each other, yeah. you know, or something like that. I don't know. I'm just uh, off the top of my head at this point. But I think we do need to, you know, uh, sing the praises of deliberation, what it's for, um, why it's here, how it is necessary for the American experiment, because those ideas don't sell themselves in the marketplace. Yep. We need rhetorical savvy to do that. Rhetoric, as opposed to sophistry, is not lying. It's telling the truth to the best of your ability to this particular audience. All right? I, I, I love two definitions of rhetoric. One is the most, you know, um, most famous, and it comes from Aristotle. Rhetoric is the ability in any given situation to discern the available means of persuasion. All right? so, I'm going to talk to you differently than I talk to this person because you're two different people and you have two different experiences. Perhaps you have different educations and things like that. It's really that simple. But then I hear I.A. Richardson's definition of rhetoric, and that is the study of misunderstanding and their remedies. Hmm. Right? And that's what I think we need to really embrace. We need to make debate cool again. We need to make deliberation cool again. And we need to realize that this is not about trickery. It's about getting along. And how do we best do that from a communicative perspective? David? I would just highlight some of the recommendations in, in your book, actually. You talk about, uh, and you mentioned, how, for instance, how corporations can stay out of um, some of these wars, and it starts with the, some sense of actual meaningful diversity on in your staff. And you talk about you know, Ricky herself as the way in which you change your policies to make sure that someone who didn't have the traditional credentials and whatnot, that accreditations, that they could you know, join your team. And I think in the same way, you need different view, back, background um, diversity, viewpoint diversity. That way, your organization is not getting dragged in by the activists every time there's a new issue, which there will always be a new issue but also so that just I think you're doing a better job selling your product. Like if you are trying to understand the consumers you're trying to reach, you want people who understand the various types of perspectives that are out there in your audience. As Michael Jordan once said, said Republicans buy sneakers too. Like you need to get, you're trying to get a, a variety of folks. And so I think a diverse viewpoint in your company helps you manage your company as well as sell your product. Um, and, and you go through various ways in which HR and everything can help in ensuring a respect for, for true sort of diversity within companies. Um, a, a last thing that I, I really enjoyed was um, in the academia section, you talk about a, having a, a, an academic a freedom ombudsman, some, yeah. someone who's actually designed to advocate for free expression on campuses. And I would actually suggest that in the same way that you suggest that it should be applied in academia, I actually thought that if there were, like once again, if there were social media companies that their product is speech, it mm -hmm. is expression, it would behoove them to consider um, engaging with a free speech ombudsman there as well. They have the trust and safety field. It's got the word safety in it. Everything is about the harms and the harmful things that are online that we need to take down. 
but expression is, and a culture-free expression is important, it would seem valuable for organizations that deal in speech to have a free speech ombudsman of some kind to say, these are the ways that internally we are gonna advocate for the expression of our users and our consumers um, in a way that will hopefully, once again, grow the pie of people who we're able to sell our product to. Uh, and uh, uh, we cover a lot of potential uh, solutions, and I talk about even more of them lately on, on my, on my Substack because um, I, I think that people are sufficiently and understandably horrified by higher ed at the, at, at the moment, and the only good part of that is maybe they're going to uh, actually consider things that could really help um, for once. Um, but I think this is uh, the perfect request, though, for a Cato audience. I think... Um, the one of the most important things, if I were asking people to set their legislative agenda for reform to better embrace freedom of speech, um, a lot of it is experimentation um, in the everything from the homeschooling space. I actually come out with four charter schools um, for uh, for vouchers. In this book, I hadn't actually previously been pro voucher before, and um, and I'm like, nope, sorry, I, I'm I'll, I'll take some flack for this, but I I, I am now. Um, but I, I, and a lot of the things we need to figure out better, cheaper, um, more rigorous ways to compete with K through 12 and with, with higher ed, but, um, those monsters, and I mean that in a value neutral way, the behemoths, um, uh, they, uh, will fight you. You know, there, there was a project that, um, someone was starting that, that was, a, a like a low cost way, uh, a, a, like a, a approach to, um, um, tutoring or something like that. And Stanford fought it, um, the, the company because, uh, they, you know, basically didn't want the competition, but they could argue that it wouldn't end up, you know, having all the different protections that Stanford has. And I think that it's really important to make sure that a lot of those excuses to shut down experimentation, you know, that people should be, and maybe there are, is already a scholar doing this at, 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 at Cato, but if not, there should be, looking at the landscape, what's holding back innovation in these spaces, and fight it. Because, uh, you know, I, I, I was thinking about... Um, Everything from ways to do sort of online, you know, education, which people have been talking about forever, but just make it you know, cheaper, faster, better. And I know that um, Sal Khan has some really innovative stuff that he's doing in the space, not just for uh, obviously Khan Academy K through 12, but for college. And that gets me excited because like, he, he, he sure as hell knows what he's doing. Um, but I even think about kind of like, because you got to remember, right now we're saying that it takes $30,000 a year to educate a single DC public school kid, and that's that creates some opportunities, you know, um, it, for for other other ways uh, to do it that could also potentially save money and actually put some of that money in the pockets of poor people in DC. Uh, it, it, instead, there's all different opportunities presented by that, but in elite higher education, the argument is that it costs seventy thousand dollars a year, and that only covers half of the cost of educating a single student. So you're talking about $140,000 is the argument that they're making to just to educate a single student. Now, first of all, if anything indicated you're doing it wrong, um, that, that, that's you know, just an eye-popping stat. But if in, let's say instead um, we figure out some way that you, we have you know rigorous exams. You know, probably uh, I, I imagine they, them being oral would actually probably make the most sense because it's hardest to cheat on those kind of exams. 
Um, but like, let's say you take a Steve Pinker or someone like that, or, or a John Haidt, and be like, uh, the following 10 people who have been uh, approved will, um, for one year, he will be their like, mentor, and he's going to give them a stack of books this high to read, and then they're going to get back together, discuss them, and then do, do an exam on them. I feel like if you could do smaller models of it, you could produce a, uh, a level of education that is way, way beyond the, 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 the sort of, um, you know, uh, environment in which everyone at Harvard gets a 3.9. I mean, that, that is the average GPA, by the way, at Harvard, 3.9. Um, uh, that you could have a much better system, a lot le less expensive, a lot, you know, um, something that won't scare poor people from applying to it because th they don't want to get, like, like don't want to get bait and switched like I did. I went to American University, and the reason why I don't like them at all is they brought me in as a scholarship student and chipped away at my scholarship every year until my final, in my junior year, I wrote, I called them out in the student newspaper and then they gave me all my money back the next year. <laughs> um, but you're not, like, so sometimes people are saying, oh, we, we should just make elite higher education, you know, uh, more affordable. I'm like, no, um, I think we need competitors for it. Um, and in the meantime, if you do have kids or grandkids or you yourself are going to a school, go to the FIRE campus free speech ranking. We, we take 13 different factors, largest study ever done of attitudes about free speech on, uh, uh, um, among students on, on these campuses. Largest database of professor, professor cancellations, student cancellations, deplatforming, and, um, uh, and, and uh, uh, speech codes uh, ever assembled by orders of magnitude. And people really are starting to pay attention to this. It got some people's attention because Harvard and Penn were, were, were the, two, uh, the two at the very bottom. Um, this year, which Harvard immediately was like, oh, that's, you know, that's, uh, that's got to be some kind of stunt. And I'm like, I regret to inform you, you really earned your way to that final spot. Well, I would love to turn to some of our audience Q&A, and I'll start with those in the room. And if you could please uh, give your name and affiliation, uh, we'll start right on the, the end over there. Thanks. Uh, Josh Levine, I'm a tech policy analyst uh, with the American Action Forum here in town. Uh, my question's for Eric. I really like your idea that we need to make debate the new uh, gladiatorial arena. We are going to be having some debates the next year or so coming up that here, I'm sure everyone in D.C. is going to be very tuned into. What would be one thing that they could do to make those debates actually worth watching? Actually worth watching? Uh, well, the subject matter, for one, you know, make it an interesting and somewhat controversial topic. Uh, that, I mean, if people are hate watching and they're still watching, right? <laughs> so I would do that. Uh, short of that, I guess I got to think this through a little bit. Um, uh, endorsements, maybe Nike can get into it, you know? Uh, what is it, what? Air, what, order? Something like that? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but yes, it has to be something that people are interested in. That's all. Uh, especially the students. You know, it has to be something they like, and it has to be something that people are actually thinking about. It has to be topical. Air Brandeis, I was thinking. <laughs> the the uh, uh, Fire actually did our, a, a debate series many years ago, and it was um, initially at least a great success, uh, and partially because people kind of assumed that we would come to campus and debate free speech and due process. And I'm like, no, no, this is for getting people out and to see what a constructive debate looks like. And we did one at Texas A&M um, many years ago where we kind of lucked out. We got someone from ESPN and the NCAA, which never happens, to debate whether or not student-athletes should be paid. 
and it was just a nice, sexy, interesting topic. Wasn't all that political, um, but but enough to like bring a lot of people in the door. And that definitely, um, at, still to this day, people come to us and they're kind of like, "That's how I found out about you guys." So you know, it doesn't have to necessarily just be heavy. But you, you, you and, and, and yes, um, Gerald Graff a few years ago wrote a book called Clueless in Academe. <laughs> um, and he has a chapter in there where he says, you know, you should have students debate, you know, who's the best football team, you know? Um, and because you, anything's an academic subject if you apply academic discourse to it, if you apply the, uh, the standard rules of deliberation to it, you know? So it doesn't matter what the topic is. It matters how they argue it. Um, so so uh, I, I thought that was promising then, and you should pick up the book if you think it's promising. Yeah, and I, well, his book. I, 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 oh, thank you. I, I, I will say one very sad thing, though. Um, some of the stories that I've been hearing about um, some of the national debate um, organizations are utterly horrifying lately. Um, yeah. There's actually a, a movement to start an entirely new. Actually, they, they've started it. An entirely new sort of debate league, more or less, um, that hasn't been taken over as much by social justice fundamentalism. And particularly as someone whose you know, family had to flee the communist or they would have killed us, um, the hearing you know, one very prominent judge have on her bio um, that she will downgrade anyone for arguments for capitalism or anything that, de that denies the quote-unquote people's revolution. So I want to turn to one of our online questions, and I think this is a, a great question, even though it came in uh, anonymously. Oh. Uh, we hear a lot about cancel culture, and our focus here has been in the U.S. Yes. You alluded to hate speech laws in Europe. We certainly see a different kind of speech culture abroad. But the question is, is the trend of cancel culture merely limited to the U.S., or has this spread globally, and could you discuss that a bit. You know, we decided to try to write this book fast, um, and uh, and I was so lucky to work with someone as good as Ricky, because I'm a wild overwriter, and I need someone who can understand what I'm saying and boil it down. And she, uh, you know, like the, like the five pages that I would send her and suddenly be kind of like, you know, this is the, the tightest I could say it. She'd come back to me with like a paragraph. I'm like, oh, that's much better. <laughs> Um, so, and, when I, and I'm saying that we wrote it fast, partially because um, it, we talked a little bit about having more of international cancel culture in it, but it just, that would have been like another year um, for the book. The one place that we were able to find some really depressing stats and some additional information, also with the help of books by people like Andrew Doyle, um, Claire Fox, um, a, a lot of our friends over there, uh, Spiked, um, uh, and, and uh, the Battle of Ideas people. Um, uh, the numbers in, in my mother's country, uh, Britain, are, are horrifying. Um, and, you know, I try to give a sense of context because, like, when you see people saying, oh, cancel culture isn't real or it's happening on this ridiculously small historical scale, that's why I'm going through all the major mass censorship incidents in American history to point out that a lot of these times, you know, um, the, the Sedition Act was 10, uh, was 10 convictions. Um, does that make it not a big deal? Hell no. It, 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 it's, it's still a big deal. Um, and uh, the um, Pomerades slash uh, Red Scare won. Uh, it was two large raids over about two years, and it was about 4,000, um, maybe 5,000 people arrested with about 800, I think, um, deported because most of them were, um, uh, were not citizens. Um, and uh, just in 2016, in Britain, 
4,000 people were arrested, or almost 4,000 people were arrested for offensive comments on the internet. If you add uh, those two years together, if you add 24, 24, 2016 and 2015, it's way more than the Palmer raids. So um, speech suppression um, uh, is all over the Anglosphere. It's all over Europe. Um, and, when it, and, you know, and of course, people can just be like, oh, yeah, but there's, there's anti-liberal trends all over the world. That's not the, exactly the same thing as cancel culture. But of course, my definition of cancel culture is very close to my definition of censorship. But when it comes to the phenomena of people being mobbed and, um, uh, and, and in a sort of a purity, a purity spiral all the way down, um, we've noticed it's practically everywhere in the Anglosphere, in the English-speaking world. Some of the rest of the world doesn't seem to be quite as affected by it. Weirdly, Spain, um, like the, 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 other than English-speaking countries, the uh, coddling in the American mind, for example, sells the most copies in Spain. Um, they have a, the, the, their word for, for woke youngsters is the indignados, the indignant ones. <laughs> Um, so yeah, cancel culture exists outside of the United States, but we definitely do seem to um, uh, excel at it in a number of ways. At least, though, we're not uh, at, we're not sending people to you know jail for bad jokes on Facebook yet. David or Eric, anything to add? I would just say that yeah, I mean, I think what you're describing though is in the absence of a lot of you know government repression in the United States you have a culture that, you, you make the distinction between culture of free expression and legal protections for free yeah. expression. And what you're having, I think, seeing in the United States is that the culture of free expression is beginning to erode. And that, that lack of popular support, and you can think here to Learned Hand or, um, or, or George Orwell who talk about how when there's lack of support for uh, uh, free speech, then even if there are laws to protect it, inconvenient minorities will be suppressed. Yep. And so I think that's what you're starting to see. Whereas abroad, they do have more legal authorities to actually use the force of government to, um, to, to, to penalize disfavored speech. You can see what's going on right now in Ireland with oh, their pre-draconian yeah. hate speech bill. You see uh, returns of um, uh, uh, efforts to do blasphemy laws in Scandinavia. Things that we thought were <coughs> gone are now in vogue again. Everything comes back in, 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 into fashion, and apparently um, blasphemy laws and restricting speech, unfortunately, is so abroad, and increasingly with government force. Yep. I'll turn to another question from our audience in the front row. We have a mic coming to you. Hi, I'm Robert Hawkins. I'm an independent software developer. I noticed in Canceling of the American Mind that you recommend parents revive the golden rule. I'm the author of a website that shows, shows social media users if they've been shadow banned. Uh, shadow banning, of course, is a tool platforms use to censor content by hiding it from everyone except the user who posted it. Um, do you see shadow banning as a violation of the golden rule? And how would you rank transparency of online censorship among the set of threats to cultural respect for free speech? That's a great question. Um, shadow banning, you know, the, the idea of a um, of the company deciding how, how much play your your, um, your post will get, rather than upvotes and downvotes in the more democratic way, that, that, that does that does trouble me. I, I think that that's a, a, an easy way to sort of suppress disfavored messages. And we made the point in um, canceling, you know, that, that we think this also really undermines faith and expertise when you see so many thumbs on the scale 
you know, offer preferred opinions and not. Um, so I, I think that pre uh, presents a real problem. When it comes to the situation with uh, social media companies, um, I, I, there definitely is a, a, like a, a big movement both in, in California, Florida, and Texas to get rid of 230, for example, and to regulate social media companies um, often in the name, well, in Texas and, and Florida uh, in the name of free speech, in California in the name of cracking down on hate speech. So I'm... Then I, I kind of almost want to introduce these states to each other. <laughs> you know, it's like California. This is why you shouldn't want to do this because this is what they'll do with that power, and vice versa. Um, I actually don't support those, and, and the First Amendment it, um, is pretty. Um, uh, I, I, I think the um, I think the more important case is the Missouri v. Biden case that said you know the jawboning um, uh, of social media companies to be sort of. Um, uh, enforcement arms of the government's decision to censor is very troubling. I was kind of embarrassed for some other First Amendment advocates out there when the initial decision came down being like, oh, this is such a terrible limitation on the free speech rights of the government. And I was like, okay, um, that's an interesting take for First Amendment person. Um, we did have some quibbles about the original decision, the district court level. Uh, we thought it was a little messy, um, but at the appellate court level, we actually think, think it did uh, quite well. So definitely, we, 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 we think that there, what people are concerned about can be addressed by reining in government power, which I'm sure like, you know, Cato, uh, a Cato audience will appreciate and understand more than, more, more than a lot of people. Um, but I, I'm going to say something kind of funny about, um, about uh, social media. I'm still kind of a techno-optimist. Um, and, and what I mean by this is that I always, I point this out in the book, um, one of the things I studied when I was in law school was censorship during the Tudor dynasty, which was all about the horrors produced by the printing press. And yeah, the horrors, because it led to an increase in civil strife and religious wars, it doomed Europe to basically 200 years of, of, of religious wars. Uh, and it led to, a, in the very short term, a, a big uptick in the witch trials because um, uh, the Malficorum, you know, the, the handbook of how can you tell someone's a witch was a bestseller. So it led short, time, short, short term to a lot of really awful things. And Henry VIII in 1521 and 1538 was saying to himself, this isn't worth it, you know, and, and tried to put the genie back in the bottle. Um, but over time, having many million additional people in a global conversation had huge benefits. Um, including the scientific revolution, you know, um, uh, uh, democracy, you know, like, it, it's amazing, like, how, how much the printing press actually did for us over time. And I do kind of, and I might sound naive, feel that way about social media, because it's a billion additional eyes on problems. And what does that mean in the short term? You can tear down any person, any idea, or any, uh, any institution. And that's not entirely negative. There are some ideas, people, at, at, and institutions that need to be torn down. But it can't build yet. Um, it, it, social media can't build anything. I talked in the Lex, Lex Friedman podcast at length about just the idea, of, wouldn't it be cool if rather than like censoring Twitter, within it there was a stream that was just about truth, uh, like uh, basically that has rules that's basically like this this is an ongoing continuing conversation with rules you, uh, you, you'll get kicked out of it if you violate the rules um, f for truth seeking 
because with an extra billion you know people in a conversation we if we used it better and we didn't just waste it on you know cat videos and cancel culture we could potentially actually use these extra billion eyes to, to produce uh, solutions so I actually see I, I have a lot of hope about what social media could actually evolve into and I think a lot of the, con the, the very real concerns by people like my, my dear friend and co-author John Haidt about some of the harms that it, that it introduces as a new technology uh, and that's always the case it's good, like a new technology is going to bring, bring some bad stuff with it um, a lot of that I think is better addressed through culturally adapting to the new technology rather than trying to um, uh, put the genie back in the bottle. David, I have to turn this question oh, over course, to you because yeah. I know that, that we both have, have done a lot of work around yeah. both the cases that were referenced as well as the, the social media context and free speech. So I'm, I'm gonna Yeah, there's, there's a, a lot I could say. I'll, I'll try to limit it to just a couple of things. And, and first is to say that uh, when it comes to thinking about your specific question about shadow banning, uh, I think this, the, the challenge that a lot of social media companies have is that they have a, a, a whole host of policies. Many of them are very visually, you can see them, you can go to their websites, you can find out what they are. There are also a lot of things that aren't as transparent. There are rules that you are not aware of, and in the case of shadow banning, you may not even be aware of the enforcement action taken against you. That strikes me as just like just a not a good way to run a business and not a good way to give the user a good experience. And so some of them are working to change that, but the sheer fact that it is a term that we know has happened, people would like to know more about what is happening, how their content is being moderated, how it is being fed to them. And I do think that with that demand, like once again, people want a better experience online, and I think that's why some companies are starting to change how they tell you about these so-called so soft actions. So not removing your content, just making it less visible. I think that level of transparency is just incredibly important, and you know, these companies should do it if they want to build a better product. Um, but also, to, yeah, to, to mention how um, they, I, I still maintain that they have, the, like I said, the right to to change those policies the way they want. Um, I, I was one of the people who helped, you know, draft those policies and change those. I just wish that they would, as you've mentioned, take. I think they would be better off considering the advantages rather than like yeah, the horrors that we're experiencing, thinking about the advantages and benefits of what could happen if they thought more positively about what social media could be. There are a whole multitude of different technologies out there for what sort of the, the next, the future of social media could be. You could have rules where people are able to more auto-moderate the content themselves, that there be sort of distributed or federalized ways of doing social media. There are, there are, there is a, a, an optimistic future here where it's not just sort of, there's just you know, one set of rules and if you don't like it and if they don't tell you what they're doing, well, that's what you're stuck with. The market I think can and is developing these solutions and that's why once again, concerned about gov efforts to regulate by government because I think you could chill those very efforts to help solve these problems that we're facing right now or you give government power vis-a-vis -vis Missouri v. Biden, and I don't think we want more of that sort of power being given to Biden to both formally or informally pressure companies to do the bidding of the government. So yeah. uh, optimistic, but I agree that, there, that companies can do better when, with things like, like, like shadow banning. Optimism has come up twice in, in this last, and, and I, I myself also often say I'm, I'm an optimist when it comes to, to things. Uh, I'm going to shorten a bit of an online question for our last question, kind of pulling on that theme of optimism. We've talked a lot about the bad that's out there, about the concerns of the, the rise of cancel culture, of some of these less free speech friendly spaces. But if some school's on the bottom of fires list, some other school has to be on the top. So to, to shorten a question that came in online is, 
what could be done to highlight those that are doing a good job of supporting free expression? What uh, should, should that look like to encourage more positive actions, perhaps, in addition to the concerns that are being expressed about cancel culture? Uh, it's actually kind of funny. Uh, FIRE um, does, we, we still do our 10 worst schools for free speech um, every year. And it's different from the CFSR. Uh, it's just like, it, it's just specifically about the most outrageous cases we've seen. And we did a little bit to try to give, you know, um, carrots and sticks. We did a, you know, best schools for free speech um, list a couple times. And then we were so badly disappointed by, uh, you know, the school that we uh, had, um, you know, said, oh, they're great. And then the next year, like, oh, you really make us regret saying that. And, and they would bring up the fact that they have like the best rating with like, firing professors, and you're like, oh, good. So in, in some ways, um, campuses sort of step on their own feet. But we do really try to let people know what schools do well in the, in the free speech ranking. And, and, um, and uh, you know, Michigan Technological University got there on its own steam. University of Virginia was in the top 10, only um, one of the only elite colleges there. Um, University of Chicago was 13th out of 248. So that there, there are some places that are, that are doing it right. And we do try to give them a lot of credit. Um, when it comes to, you know, uh, encouraging good behavior on free speech, uh, FIRE um, in our last, we, we gave out like a free speech award. I think um, Heterodox is doing something like that too. There's lots of different ways you can, um, you, you, you can uh, sort of create sort of positive uh, feedback and support for that, um, but uh, 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 not to make it, I, sometimes we've been disappointed at how that recognition can be used, but I do think, I do think there's at least some people who are really waking up to there being a serious free speech problem, um, and that you, and, and that the, um, the, the exhausted middle, as they're called, and the hidden tribes, um, you know, would, would like uh, to return to the, those idioms I talk so much about in the book. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, to each their own, um, walk a mile in a man's shoes, all of these uh, good habits for a small-D democratic society. Eric, any, any thoughts on what we can do to highlight those that are, are helping bring, make debate cool again and, and bring back a, a culture of free speech? Mention them often and loudly. That's it. Oh, Dartmouth, by the way. Um, I, I, I should mention them. Uh, they're one of the only schools that I know of that actually seems to be doing a pretty good job on Israel-Palestine, actually having people talk to each other. Um, and what they did right was they started this program well before October 7th. Um, and because it, it, it's been one of those situations where it doesn't seem like anybody debates these on the, on the most afflicted campus. They just shout at each other. Um, but uh, but I, 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 I've, I have actually some hope for Dartmouth, and I think that some of the stuff that Stanford's doing under Jenny Martinez gives me some hope. David, I'll let you kind of get the last word on this question. Uh, yeah, just I'll just quickly note that I guess you point out, I think that there is an opportunity here amongst the you know, disaffected folks in the middle, people who are tired of it. I, I think Ricky talks about how Gen Z might be ready. They're, they're tired of what the millennials have, have, have done. There, there might be opportunities here for us to, and this is sort of a strange bedfellow type issue. There are people on the right, there are people on the left who want us to be a society that cares about free expression again. And so I think it's an opportunity for people who are so used to political tribalism to find opportunities to have those conversations with people or organizations that they don't often align with but to work together in ways that I think is constructive, to call out those, even if they're normally not agreeing with them, to mention those people loudly that you might agree with, disagree with them on almost all the other issues, but 
give them their props when they are doing the right thing, when they are standing up for free expression. So I think there's an opportunity for truly working with a diverse set of people on different sides of different issues, but can agree that we need a culture of free expression. And so I think that's something we can do to, to more positively uh, advance, uh, stop canceling and advance the culture of free expression. We had a lot of great questions come in online, and I know we had more people in the audience that, that had questions than we had time to get to. I want to thank you all for joining us today, for being part of this important conversation. As was mentioned, the book is The Canceling of the American Mind, and it is available anywhere books are, are sold. Um, and we thank you for joining us today and look forward to seeing you at future Cato events. Thank you. Well done. Oh, you're right.